This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 35 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by another awesome guest. He is an iOS developer at Pinterest, where he works on the core experience and building developer tools. It's Rahul Malik. Welcome to the show, Rahul. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. So uh, I'm very excited about this episode because you are doing some really interesting things over at Pinterest in regards to how you build and structure your app. And we're also going to take this opportunity to dive into exactly what goes into building an iOS app at scale, because you have quite a big iOS team at Pinterest, don't you? Yeah, so iOS here is, um, I mean, at any given time, we're usually around 40 to 50 employees um, working solely on iOS. Yeah, that's uh, quite a large team. It's uh, definitely bigger than my team right now, which is just me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it was very similar when I was working at Spotify too. And uh, that's why it's going to be interesting to talk to you today, because um, there's some really kind of specific challenges you face once you start scaling a team beyond the kind of typical, I would say, which is, you know, five to 10 people or something like that. Yeah. So um, when you have like five to 10 people, um, you know, everyone's kind of in the same room. Uh, Everyone's on the same team. It's just the iOS team. And, you know, when you start to scale up the organization and you get, you know, to 10 to like 20, 30 employees um, just working on iOS solely, um, you know, it starts to become interesting how you use those people and how you actually uh, figure out what everyone works on. And so uh, here, um, I feel like we have sort of settled on a structure that's very similar to what a lot of other companies end up going to. Um, you generally start with the iOS team. That's when you're five to 10 people. Yeah. And then when you get closer to the 20 or, or more employees, you have the core team, which is what I work on. And then you start to form, uh, you know, product teams. So people that, uh, focus on specific aspects of your product. Yeah. And it's really, it's really a necessity because, you know, as your product starts to get more complex and you start to scale up, you have certain areas that you need people to be dedicated to and they're dedicated to that specific area and making it better and really focusing on improving that specific experience and those core metrics. So like for us, that means that we have people that are focused on home feed and on search and on like the profile or just like different aspects of um, user growth or user acquisition. And generally our teams aren't, uh, you know, you say, I said it's like, you know, 40 people, but the teams are still quite lean. You know, I would say we have a lot of teams, but those teams have maybe two to three iOS engineers apiece. Um, some of them even just have one and they end up sort of just partnering with other engineers in the organization to help get things done. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very common way of structuring it, like feature teams or feature squads or product teams or whatever you want to call them. It's a very interesting way of kind of scaling up development because once you reach that, reach that certain point, you kind of need to dissect the problem, right? Just like when we have a big class or something in code and we want to deal with it, usually the way to go is to start splitting things up and to make them into more smaller manageable pieces. And well, we don't want to split up people, right? But we can split (laughs) up teams and we can split up product areas. And that way we can kind of cover more ground, right? Even though it does require uh, us to 
work more on other things like infrastructure, build tools and, and things like that, which is a very interesting problem to face when, you know, you can't only rely on the platform vendors to actually supply us with the tools that we need in such a big team. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and we've uh, just in the product side, we've, you know, gone with a few different ideas. I'd say like, you know, we tend to keep our our organizational structure maybe for a year to two years and then sort of rethink, um, you know, how to actually deploy all the people we have to solving the current problems. And so, so previously it was, uh, it was actually like more feature teams, like I said, with like search and home feed. But these days, uh, we're actually focused on particular ways that people use Pinterest. So like it might be how people uh, create content, how people retrieve content, um, how people browse content. And so what's interesting is that people that used to work on specific features now actually work on a sort of a specific aspect of the application and cut it across like many different features, and they potentially work on almost like every part of the app. Cool. So you would say that's more kind of geared towards use cases in the app and kind of user journeys or or uh, tasks that the user wants to perform rather than specific individual views or specific individual features. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, and then when it comes to the sort of like core um, teams, like, you know, originally your platform team sort of owns, I'd say, sort of like maybe the core architecture and core frameworks. Um, but then as you start to scale up the number of developers, uh, you know, certain things don't work anymore. You know, it used to be uh, used to be like when there was a new best practice, you would just, you know, stand up and tell everyone or you would send an email um, and or a Slack message with at here or at channel or something. Yeah. <laughs> and and everyone would every, everyone would suddenly know and everyone would follow the new best practice and things like that. Um, but as you have an organization where people are sort of coming and going and, you know, some people see emails, some people don't. Um, you actually have to figure out how to scale your best practices. And so um, so things that sort of like platform teams do is that they figure out actually how to invoke best practices and enforce them through tooling. So you end up having uh, things that you're building through the form of linters or through static analysis or um, you're building custom tools to enforce your own best practices. Um, and that's actually how you start to figure out um, – like, you know, hey, if I can't, if I can't, you know, have a conversation with every single person that starts, how do they sort of stumble upon doing things the right way or the way we expect them to do it? And a lot of that involves building custom tools. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also really cool when you start kind of incorporating uh, the learnings or the best practices and things into tools themselves. And you kind of have the tools kind of act as documentation in a way. And uh, I would say that's also super valuable for smaller teams as well. Uh, we've been talking about it on this show previously about tools like Danger, for example, right? Where you can uh, encode rules into Danger to make your code reviews much more smooth and to avoid a lot of those kind of back and forths in a code review where, you know, oh, you didn't uh, follow this exact code style or, oh, you didn't use this pattern or something like that, right? Where you have the tools kind of speak for themselves and you have them kind of guide you uh, to doing the right thing instead of having to have those kind of code police people <laughs> who come <laughs> in and say, well, oh, you're not doing it right. Yeah, we definitely have, uh, I mean, We've gone back and forth on this, but I think we settled on that we don't want to be the police um, yeah. because it's 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 not a fun job, and it's also just uh, it's not a productive or a scalable job. So we so we rely on tools to just sort of I think take away anything that a human can't do. So when I when I put up a you know a PR for review, um, you know I want someone's like you know input in sort of like 
the actual like content of what I'm trying to do, not the formatting, um, not like sort of like the you know like I think everyone has this like mental list of like of like gotchas that you look for in right. code reviews or like <laughs> exactly. hey. You, you forgot to, you know, an objective C is like, you forgot to like, you know, you're retaining self here in this block or, yeah. you know, there's all sorts of like random gotchas depending on what language you're in. And so what we do is we actually like, you know, we try to identify those opportunities and then try to eliminate them. So a good example is, uh, we started doing code formatting as part of our PR process. So that way, um, you know, we noticed a lot of the comments ended up being like, your braces are on this line. All right. <laughs> uh, you, I don't know. It's like it's like you, you, the indenting is wrong or something like that. And we're yeah. like, we're like, hey, everyone, here's a formatter. Here, this file defines the style, and this is how uh, we expect the code to look. So we don't have to talk about this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you do this with other things. So the and a, a coworker of mine like phrased this really well. He said that like there's different sort of like iteration loops um, in terms of when you get feedback. So you can think about the, the shortest one is um, sort of like the at compile time. So at compile time, you're building your app and, you know, generally when you get a failure or you get some warning or something like that, you're getting like instant feedback locally. The next is, you know, when you update a PR. So then you have danger or you have like SwiftLint or you have some tool that is telling you at that part of the life cycle that you need to correct something. Yeah. And then you have, of course, PR comments and then, and then unfortunately production. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so we try to just, I think, uh, in general, we try to say like for any given problem, like let's figure out how to actually make it in the uh, earlier end of that development loops. So we actually, for our general best practices, we we built like our own sort of in rules that are built on top of Clang. Mm -hmm. So you can actually take the open source Clang, not the one that Xcode gives you, um, and you can actually build plugins for it. And with these plugins, you can actually have your own custom rules enforced at compile time. So when it's compiling a specific file, you can actually get the AST. You can write a visitor that will look at it and will actually be able to raise warnings or errors. And in our experience, it actually shows up directly in Xcode. So, you know, for our, for our gotchas, you know, because LVM and Clang and, you know, even Xcode, you know, they, they can only give you general errors. They don't know your specific conventions. They don't know the app you're trying to build or what your best practices are. Yeah. They can only tell you things like you didn't match up these types or this string literal is not terminated and like literally like syntax errors, right? Exactly. Exactly. Cool. And uh, at Pinterest, you are working on the core experience team, which is uh, essentially building these tools and providing these uh, platforms for the other developers in your company. So what's it been like for you to start working more with developer tools and kind of having your customers kind of be other developers within the same building? It's been really interesting because I think we have to like, you know, figure out um, sort of like... Uh, you know, either through our own observations or through like directly interviewing developers, um, sort of like what some of the problems are. And we've had to figure out, you know, how to sort of deploy the people we actually have in our team to solve the most valuable problems. And so with product changes, you're used to, um, we're a very data-driven company. So, or we like to say data-informed because it doesn't directly influence the decisions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good distinction to make. Yes. But with developer tools, it's actually interesting. Um, some stuff is quantifiable. Some stuff is uh, more sentiment. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so we're not running uh, sort of like A/B experiments. We're not like we don't have like a we don't have like a like a dashboard of um, you know like like people used Xcode more often or something like that. Uh, You're not like <laughs> randomly failing people's bills to see how they no, react. No, we're not like yeah we're, <laughs> yeah, we're not like oh people don't like that. You know, it's like, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so what's really interesting is that um, we've tried to figure out uh, like a few different ways of sort of measuring success when it comes to building developer tools. And for some of that, we have we have quarterly surveys that we sent out um, where we asked developers like quite explicitly, like, are these things working for you? Um, what's working? What's not working? What do we, what are your what are sort of areas for improvement? And we sort of like aggregate and go through that feedback and try to figure out if there's any common themes or or areas that really need focus. Um, yeah. For other things that are more quantifiable, like things like um, build times or uh, failure rate in any particular dev tool or things like that. Yeah, or test failures or flakiness and things like that. Exactly, exactly. So we actually have um, either like CI pipelines that test flakiness or we have uh, we have local instrumentation. So when you do a build, it actually reports the build time to StatsD, um, which for us like ends up like gathering a nice set of metrics around everyone's build time for every build. Yeah, because uh, we talk a lot in the industry at large about user experience, right? Like providing the best experience for our users. And that's, of course, you know, the end goal to build apps that delight our users and that have a really good user experience. But I also really believe that in order to have a good user experience, you also need to have a good engineering experience. You need to have fun working on your app. And especially as an app gets larger or older, uh, these things can go down quite quickly. Like you can start having a lot of problems and it can be not so much fun anymore to work on on this code base. And this is the point where a lot of people will just say, okay, let's rewrite. Uh, But... There's, of course, a lot of things we can do to improve our engineering experience and to measure it, like you mentioned, and put some hard numbers on, you know, how fast this thing is this thing actually to build? Uh, how often are our tests failing? And how can we kind of improve the overall engineering experience? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I think, like, I don't know, a code base is, you know, something that it's very tempting to rewrite. Um, but, you know, I think often, like, you end up, when you actually dive deep, you usually find a few, like, sort of, uh, I would say pain points that you can sort of go after and generally sort of, like, iterate on. I think yeah. the best code bases, um, in my opinion, like, you know, they aren't, um, they aren't very strict to a particular pattern or architecture. It's actually, it's sort of like organically grows into something that is specific to that application. Right. Um, for instance, like, Pinterest, like, you know, under the hood, has like its own its its own sort of like architecture that's sort of formed and it's formed out of the needs of that application. So uh like our application, if you think about it, it's very image heavy. Um mm-hmm. we yeah. want the experience to feel endless. So scroll performance um and like being very efficient with like how we preload data and when we preload data is really important. Um and so we've built a lot of abstractions for our developers to make it really easy to create these sort of infinitely scrolling experiences and in very few lines of code. Um you you want to make sure your architecture is one where it's like productive to create the kind of app you're creating. So like, you know, if you're able to um like, you know, create the right abstractions, like your developers will be very productive. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where system design really comes in and where just taking a design pattern and following that, well, that's a really great start. But like you mentioned, like after a while, after you've started to work on this problem for a while and your app grows and maybe you add more people to the team, you start noticing these uh 
maybe maybe problem areas or maybe redundancies or where things are duplicated and creating the right level of abstractions and really doing the system design to to decide like okay which type of abstraction should we deploy and where and where is it worth maybe limiting the developer quote unquote freedom a little bit but to actually make things a bit more uniform yeah i mean i think that building the right abstractions um, allows people to do the right thing easily. Yeah. And so that is, that's really powerful because what we found is that, you know, I think on the sort of like core and platform teams, uh, you tend to have sort of more of a uh, purist mindset, I would say. Um, <laughs> so you're, it should be you're beautiful like, and elegant. <laughs> this is the way it should be. And it's composable and it's, uh, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, you think, you think much more at that level. Um, yeah. When you're on other teams, like, you know, you have sort of not, not say you don't care about those things, but you know, your goal is to get out and experiment. Your goal is to get a change into production. And so. Generally, it's the path of least resistance that wins. And so the interesting part um, when it comes to even building architectures or even developer tools here is that you're really actually trying to build the most uh, sort of like easy to use tool that's the most productive. And sort of you generally know if your tool is well adopted that it is the it is the right solution and it is um, it is the one that developers have found the easiest to use or they found it to be productive for them. Yeah, because in a large team like that, like it's not that you can mandate, I mean, you can, of course, you can go from the top down and say, you know, now everyone is using this framework, now everyone is using uh, this pattern. But usually it's kind of hard to do that in a large team. So you end up having to kind of build a tool that is so good that people actually want to use it. Because with so many developers, you have so many different, you know, ideas and teams and, and different ways of doing things. So you really need to make sure that your tool is really the path of least resistance so that they don't go off and build their own tool and then you end up with 50 different solutions. Exactly. And then our team, you know, thinks about like developing stuff uh, almost like you think about developing an open source project. You know, you need the right documentation. You need the right sort of like, I think, user feedback and errors when your tool fails. Um, you need it to be uh, something that people understand how it fits into their workflow. So that they, uh, so they actually adopt it. And so, and also when there is an issue that they're able to self-diagnose. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes really into the kind of autonomy aspect, which becomes more and more important as a team grows. Because like we mentioned, most big companies or most big tech companies, they kind of start organizing themselves in these smaller micro teams, feature teams or product areas. And, uh, in order for those teams to be able to execute efficiently, you need them to be able to be quite autonomous and to be able to work kind of on their own. So uh, what are some things that you really kind of focus on when it comes to kind of enabling this kind of autonomy in a large code base? So, I mean, I think this goes back to, uh, like, I think what I said earlier about building tools and how you sort of you have to sort of like codify your best practices. And so like if someone is working on a specific team, I might not know what they're working on or what they're trying to achieve. Um, but I have maybe some sort of like high level goals that, you know, the application remains fast, that we're able to still remain like at 60 frames per second on a particular view, um, you know, that like a certain amount of code coverage or vice versa. So, um, so I think like, I think, you know, you have to figure out how to sort of um, inject, like, like the things you want to sort of, like, maintain true in your code base into sort of the tooling and in the process. 
And and then you sort of need to it's a hard it's a hard thing, especially if you feel a strong sense of ownership over the code base, but you have to sort of let it go. Yeah. <laughs> because exactly. once it's sort of like, you know, out there, eventually you won't be able to control everyone. You know, like we we have a team of 40. I think like, you know, if you talk about like one app at Facebook, you're talking in the hundreds of employees. Right. Um, you know, it's just it just becomes it's not a scalable way to um, sort of like be on every PR. Right. Because, again, you don't want to have the code police patrolling the neighborhood every single pull request. Exactly. Exactly. And so you get autonomy by sort of having good tools and and sort of like I think good sort of like systems. Um, f- Facebook did a good uh they did a good like blog post um, like the other day about their mobile lab recently, and so cool. We put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty cool. Like they they actually compare every PR to what is currently in production for performance, um, and so this is something where you don't have to have a. Uh, team, they probably have a performance team um, or multiple teams, but they they don't have to have someone that specifically watches out for that. Right. Um, they have they have tools and they have sort of like things that provide visibility and insights so that you know if I broke something or if I regressed a metric, um, you know I would get that feedback and it's I would get that feedback in an automated way and and I and and the nice thing for me is that I can sort of make changes freely and not be scared to make them. And that's like the other thing is, so I think autonomy sort of comes a little bit um, like, you know, if you come from the other side, not for the person trying to enforce a metric, but the person trying not to break a metric is you're really, you're really like looking at this and you're saying, uh, like, how can I make changes and be confident I didn't break things? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's where testing comes in. That's where like regression suites come in. Um, there's a lot of different ways to sort of go about that problem. Um, but I think in general, the goal is the goal is not a specific thing like tests or coverage or whatever. The goal is how do people feel confident? that they're not going to sort of break things. Yeah, because when you're working a large code base, chances are that you're going to, at some point, pretty quickly actually, t- uh, touch some code that is shared among different features. Because at the same time, when we have autonomy, we don't want every team to have to reinvent the wheel. We want to have, like a like you say, good tools and a stable platform that you can can, can build upon. And when you have that situation that you have to touch that shared framework that is used all across Pinterest or all across Facebook or Spotify, or whichever app we're talking about, uh, that can be kind of scary when you're a beginner. And definitely having those tools in place can really help kind of alleviate some of that, uh, some of that fear. Yeah, I know generally, uh, for us, we have, we have like, this sort of um, sort of I'd say culture where we just ask people like you know you can make a change anywhere. There's no like explicit like only certain people can modify certain code. That's probably a good policy to have, I think. Yeah, and then you then you just loop in on your review the maybe the author of that area or the person who's like the most knowledgeable about that area just to kind of give you some light feedback or just to sort of like rubber stamp it. Um, but in general, like you know uh, the thing you want to also promote. Um, when you come to having everyone sort of build across the entire app and modify any kind of code is knowledge sharing. And so the thing that kind of becomes, uh, that sort of cripples autonomy at some point is when you have these sort of like information silos. So you have certain developers that are the only people that know a certain area. Um, and like those quick people quickly become the bottleneck and then it and then it sort of like becomes a point where teams are, you know, dependent on other people and maybe that person's on vacation or, right. you know, maybe that person's, maybe that person's no longer at the company. Who knows? Um, 
And uh, and so I think like autonomy, there's a lot of aspects that are really interesting about it. I think, you know, um, it's really about good tools um, and being able to sort of like perform your job without without having dependencies or at least minimal dependencies on on sort of others. Um, and that requires there's a lot that goes into that. But it's like but it's incredible for developer velocity if you achieve it. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that I think ties into all of these things we've been discussing also is kind of how you set up those dependencies or how you set up that those shared frameworks, those shared uh, foundations. Uh, it's a lot about being able to build like a really composable system where your system or your frameworks are not super strongly opinionated and they don't say this is the only way to build things because chances are there's going to be a new feature and a new project coming along that breaks some of those conventions and for those developers then to be able to take like still a large part of that shared platform say like the networking layer and the caching layer and the database layer and then and then build their own features on top of that kind of as these lego pieces or these building blocks i think that becomes really really crucial uh in a big app yeah we um we tend to take uh sort of i th- say like a l- i'm not sure if this is the right terminology but this is what we use like uh sort of like a layered approach like an onion yes like an onion so, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of similar to what Apple does, to be honest. Like, so, you know, you have like these sort of like lower level, like abstractions, and then they build higher level frameworks on top of it. Yeah. So, you know, core animation, UI kit, like, you know, CF network, um, you know, and then NSURL session and things like that. Yeah. So, so for us, like, like, you know, if we need to build like one piece of architecture, um, or one sort of like framework or service, it might actually be like to most developers, they might interact with just the highest level. Um, but if you need to say like go to something more specific, like for instance, like with our networking layer, we have, we have like, you know, like a basically a thin wrapper around NSURL session. And then we have like a few abstractions that are sort of like, um, make it a little bit easier to like sort of work with like different services on our back end. Um, or maybe do certain things with like authentication or like sort of like signing requests. Um, and then we have like sort of like, you know, ways to sort of go deeper into that and say like, okay, I want to execute this on say like, you know, a background session, or I want to do this um, in a different way, or I want to sort of like bypass this layer because I have something a little bit more complex to do. And so I think I think making sure that you don't bake too many opinions into it, but you maybe like, maybe you build a, a, another like abstraction or two on top of it to like make the 80% case really easy um, is probably the right way to go about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it ties into what we said before as well, that when you're building these tools, you really want them to be like the the best possible options and the easy, easiest possible options. Yeah. Uh, so we've been talking now for a while about, you know, working at scale and how kind of iOS development takes different shapes and forms when a team grows. Uh, but what's, what I also find really interesting is that I was working at Spotify for almost four years, which was, you know, at quite a large scale. But I've also took a lot of those learnings with me and I've also actually been able to apply so many of the same kind of learnings and techniques and principles even when working on a small code base as well without of course over-engineering things and building like a super complex you know feature management dependency injection system for every single app I work on (laughs) Uh, but I wanted us to kind of uh, kind of um, end this topic with just discussing some kind of learnings that we think can also be applied to a small code base as well. Like even if you don't have these large numbers, what are some of the learnings that we've both had from working on large code bases that we think can be useful even for people working in small teams? What do you think? 
there's a lot to sort of carry over. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the things I would say that, um, that I know we haven't talked about, but, um, so, Pinterest releases every week. It's it's very interesting because I think like you know historically you were criticized um, or like penalized um, if you release too often to the App Store, uh, but but these days it's 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 very common. And so the uh, and so having like a sort of like a release cadence is actually pretty important because it allows you to sort of routinely get improvements and bug fixes out to developers. Um, I worked at a startup before I was at Pinterest and. We, you know, I, th- I think like we did something that a lot of people do, which is like, hey, the next release is ready when it's ready. And like we have a set number of features or something yeah. we're building. <laughs> and like, you know, so it might be like two weeks, it might be two months, you know, it's it's very sort of it's users don't know when to expect an update. And so um, I'd say like, you know, when you're sort of building an experience, uh, especially when you're a small, if you're a smaller code base, I'm assuming you're a smaller company and your goal is to really get product market fit and to understand like, you know, what your users want and to iterate quickly. So I'd say like, you know, making sure that, you know, it's very easy for you to release and that you're releasing at a sort of quicker cadence is actually really important. Um, outside of that, uh, outside of release stuff, we're talking about more about code. Um, documentation is super important. Um, I think it's something that you don't need to go too n- deep into it. You're going to have good documentation in code or at least like a document about the, or just like a one pager around like, I built this and this is why I built this this way yeah. is like, is like incredibly impactful because those, those sort of like, I'd say, uh, that like institutional knowledge or like just like the, like gets lost over time. Yeah, and it's also great even if you're just one person because you tend f- to forget things yourself as well. <laughs> so the person reading this documentation and being happy that th- this documentation exists might actually be yourself six months from now. Yeah, and I think that's a good point is that, you know, thinking about like, this is your code base now, but where do you want your code base to be in a year or two or like um or like maybe setting up good practices early on if you if you started writing you know tests say early on in your code base um there's a good chance that your code is written in a testable way um and that you're able to uh sort of like make it easy for other people to to sort of like add to that test base later on and what is really hard is when you try to necessarily do that later on because you might have you might have a lot of stuff that maybe not that's not as easy to test or maybe things that are um, a little bit harder to sort of like make those changes. And and when your code base gets larger and larger, those problems just become bigger and bigger. More code, more problems. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I'd say like, uh, you know, one of the, there's, there's many things, but I'll leave one last thing is that I'd say generally almost any code can be sort of improved with small tweaks. So I'd say like having a culture where it's like, where like you're every time you look at something and like something just isn't like a little bit right um or maybe you're like oh this could be a little bit better like taking that hour two hours whatever to actually go ahead and make that change um and generally leaving the code base better than you found it is probably something that's really impactful over time as that compounds yeah uh, I definitely agree on the release train part. I think that's something that can be adopted even if you're a small team. And you might not release every single week, but you might say, let's release once per month or let's release once uh, every two months or something like that. And just setting up that cadence, like you say, creates more predictability. And even if you're working in a small team, chances are that you'll be working with some other people, like, for example, people working on Android or maybe people working in marketing or with customer support. And having that kind of you know, shared 
uh, understanding or that shared schedule of when we release things can really help you know make communication so much easier and uh, one other really important thing there that you said I think is making releasing easy because if you do it often and it's painful you start making it nicer because you don't want to have that pain every single time and most often when I see code bases where they have a really really convoluted, really difficult release process, it's usually when they release very rarely. While teams that release often, they usually have optimized that. And that is really great for a number of reasons, because you make continuous integration easier, you make it easier to speed things up by having more people join the team, maybe for temporary little effort or something like that. So there are many benefits to structuring things uh, for these type of things early on, even if you have a smaller code base to begin with. Great. Um, now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something related, but a little bit different, and that is about build systems. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank our first sponsor. It's a brand new sponsor, and I think you're really going to like the incredible offer they have for you as a listener to this show. And it's my good friends at Manning. Manning has been publishing programming books for over 30 years. That's almost as old as I am. They have books on all sorts of programming topics. And lately, they've been building up a big selection of books and videos about Swift developments. As a special offer for everyone listening to this show, they've put together a really cool bundle of their very best Swift content, and even better is that they're giving you a massive 40% discount on their entire catalog of books and videos. In this special Swift bundle, you've got books like Classic Computer Science Problems in Swift, which can help you freshen up some of your computer science knowledge, perhaps to prepare you for an interview or to enable you to work with algorithms and other CS-focused problems in a more efficient manner. We've also got Swift in Depth, which takes you on a deep dive into some of Swift's more advanced aspects, like asynchronous programming, generics, collections, and much more. And then there's Swift in Motion, a brand new video series with hours of Swift content, guides, and tutorials. It walks you through the whole process of building an iOS app in Swift, and goes through a wide range of topics, everything from layout to navigation to data persistence. But that's only the beginning. In their Swift bundle, you'll find much more content for developers of all levels. Whether you're just starting out with Swift development or programming in general, or if you've been doing it for years, they've got something for everyone here. You can also read all of these books in a format that suits you. They've got both printed books and 100% DRM-free eBooks, as well as their live book online reading platform, which lets you read the entire Manning collection on the web wherever you are. So I really encourage you to check out this special Swift by Sundell Manning bundle right now. Just open up Safari and type deals.manning.com slash Sundell. Again, that's deals.manning, M-A-N-N-I-N-G, dot com slash Sundell. That'll give you an incredible 40% discount on Manning's books and videos. And as an added bonus, they'll even give you their Exploring Swift mini ebook for free. So go to deals.manning.com slash Sundell to claim your free mini ebook and to take advantage of that massive 40% discount, which also really helps support this show and all of Swift by Sundell. 
Thank you so much to Manning for sponsoring Swift by Sundell, which really helps making the show possible. All right, so about build systems. At Pinterest, you are actually using Bazel, which is a build system by Google. And I think this is quite interesting because I know there's not a lot of people out there who use a custom build system. Of course, they exist, like Google, like you and other companies. But uh, I think it would be interesting to hear from you kind of what the reason is that you use a custom build system and kind of how that works. But first things first, Rahul, what exactly is a build system and how does it relate to the compiler and the other kind of tools that we use? So a build system is, uh, you can think of it as like, it's, it's sort of like a manager that figures out what needs to be done to build something. So it's very abstract, but like, let's say I'm building an application, an iOS application. Um, this might involve compiling sources with, with Swift C or linking with Clang. It might involve compiling asset catalogs. And so a build system really, um, it understands all the tasks that need to actually happen to produce the output you want. Yeah. And so a build system, for instance, like will have a series of build actions. There's actually a really good paper um, that goes into depth in a few different build systems uh, called Build Systems a la carte. Cool. We'll also put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah, it was trending on Hacker News. Uh, and essentially it compares uh, like make, which is considered a build system, uh, mm -hmm. Excel, um, which is like a build system in disguise. Um, right. And <laughs> Shake, which is if you're a Haskell person, you've heard of it, and then Bazel. Um, and so the interesting part about build systems is that, like, I think at their core, they're, they're really about, like, you know, understanding, uh, sort of like what are all the sort of like actions that need to happen to actually create, like, say, like an app, a static library, a framework, or it could be, could be anything. Um, like, and then a compiler is sort of an input to the build system. So a compiler is like, it's like a part of the tool chain. So like, what are the sort of like, uh, sort of like other sort of tools that are required to actually complete this build? So, um, in, in like Xcode's case, there's like, there's like the asset, like catalog compiler, there's Clang, um, there's LD, the linker, there's like a few other tools there too. Yeah. And so, in, and so what a build system, it requires you to do is sort of, uh, like clearly define what the inputs and outputs are of your build system and what, and, and the compiler and like say like the source files are all inputs. And, and that's at a high level what it does. Um, and then the interesting parts are sort of like the details of what they do after that. So if you, um, if you t talk about like, uh, like make, um, like make is going to, um, actually look at sort of the file modification date to figure out if something has changed. Right. So optimizing and having caching and things like that to make things as fast as they can be and not doing redundant work. Exactly. And so, yeah. And a lot of this is about just reducing, reducing unnecessary work. Um, so like Bazel, for instance, like the thing we get with that is it's very explicit about its inputs and outputs. And so what Bazel is really good at is it can actually determine the entire build graph of creating our app and it'll tell us the minimum amount of things that need to actually be done and, and then it can execute them. And 
And the nice thing about that is that uh, it tracks these, it tracks the actual file content and then it provides um, sort of like nice hooks on top of that for things like caching or remote execution, which would allow you to sort of take your build and then put it on sort of like your fleet of CI servers or things like that. Um, and and what's really great about uh, around Basil is that they, you know, compared to like some of the other systems, like I would say like they've remained pretty focused, like in terms of the actual like Basil project is like a core build system. It's, it remains sort of fairly abstract, um, but they have a they have a Python like extension language um, to where you can write your own custom rules and to create your own custom actions. And so you can actually have things like, say, I don't know, if you wanted to integrate sorcery directly into your build system or thrift generation or some other random developer tool that you've written that isn't, that's closed source or maybe not even external to your company. Um, you can sort of codify all this into your actual builds graph and have Bazel execute it for you. Yeah, that's really, really cool. And uh, there's kind of many lightweight ways you can extend the build system as well. The build system that Xcode uses, which is actually a brand new implementation now since Xcode 10, they rewrote the Xcode build system in Swift and made it a lot faster, which is pretty cool. And what's interesting also is that you mentioned some of these kind of phases and how it plans a build. And you can actually kind of see how Xcode does this now, because when you press Command R or Command B in Xcode, it starts by saying planning build, and then it actually divides the whole build process into different tasks. And you can kind of see how it progresses through those tasks if you look at the kind of activity bar at the top. And uh, one lightweight way of extending that build system is with scripts and to have like a run script build phase where you can invoke tools like like sorcery, like you mentioned, or Swift format or Swift lint. And but with Basil, like you mentioned, you can kind of take that integration a little bit deeper. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, it's definitely for those that like want to get a little bit more involved in how your app builds um, or if you have like kind of custom requirements. Um, and but but they've been able to use this to create like sort of extensions for building Swift for building iOS applications Android applications. Um, they internally use Bazel to build everything from like C plus plus servers to mobile apps um, to uh, sort of like compiling Angular apps and TypeScript. Um, and so it's it's very it's very general um, in terms of like what it is. Um, but there's very specific extensions that have sort of that the community has actually been creating a lot of, which is really powerful. Yeah, that's really cool. And it kind of comes back to that Onion architecture that we talked about before, right? <laughs> Where yeah. Basil is at a much lower level and it doesn't have any kind of opinions about how the build is actually performed, like how the code is compiled. It's just a way to kind of orchestrate all those tasks and analyze the kind of dependencies between them to figure out kind of the fastest path through the through the graph. Exactly. And, like, and when you sort of keep your focus to just that. Um, you can build really good general tools on top of it. Like for instance, like it currently has the ability to, to dump out like profiling information. So you can actually see like very easily, like, you know, the statistics on your build, which files are taking a long time. Um, like when is trying to parallelize your build, which, which maybe frameworks are sort of like the bottleneck to where like you might say, Oh, like there's this weird pause where, um, where like for this time we're compiling this framework and it's because like 20 other frameworks depend on this one. Right, exactly. Yeah, and so and I think and and I think like giving you that sort of insight is really powerful. Um and and it's 
primarily because they're able to sort of focus on like what do all build systems need and or what could all all sort of builds benefit from and they've built a lot of really powerful tools on top of it for that so we talked before about kind of what learnings from a large code base that could be applied to a small code base as well so what i want to ask you is at what point did you at pinterest feel like you know the built-in xcode build system is not cutting it for us like we need something slightly more customizable or slightly more powerful and what was the point where you kind of said okay it's time to go for basil instead so at what point is a kind of third-party build system you think a good way to go so we started to look at third-party build systems through our modularization effort um, we called PinCore, which was breaking out sort of core services and uh, responsibilities from our main application, which is comprised of like a few thousand source files. Um, mm-hmm. And so we wanted to take um, things like our networking library or our networking or our logging library and actually pull it out of the code base into shared frameworks that were well-documented, well-tested, um, and easy to use. Um, and this was primarily a little bit for code health and also to make it um, sort of like really obvious to the rest of our developers, like what sort of abstractions are available to them and that those abstractions are well-tested and reliable. Yeah. And so we started uh, we started looking at doing this with Xcode um, and we started writing sort of XC config files and um, and it just became kind of it, it just it just did like XC config um, there is some documentation on it um, but it doesn't really feel like um, something that was like really obvious is there's a lot of trial and error that goes into it for sure <laughs> yeah yeah I'm like will this work maybe yeah maybe this work. <laughs> let's try um, yeah <laughs> and then uh, and then we're like okay what's maybe a the next way if we don't want to maintain this what's like another way we could do this and um, we're using cocoa pods for our third party uh, like you know dependencies and so we actually started looking at um, using cocoa pods and and so we quickly hit an issue where, um, like, you know, we were able to say, uh, you know, this library is like a pod and like, you know, it would generate a separate target and a separate project. And um, but then we quickly ran into an issue that may or may not be resolved at this point. But at that time, uh, we had local dependencies that depended on other local dependencies. And all oh, right. Coco- and CocoaPods didn't support that. Um, we would have to break everything out into separate repositories in our like sort of like internal uh, Git um, system. And so uh, that was sort of an anti goal for us. Like we, we like strongly believe that we want to have all the code still in one repository, just sort of in different areas of it. Um, and so, and so then we started to explore Buck because Buck is, you know, I think it had a lot of sort of traction or at least like a lot of press from not only Facebook, but the folks at Airbnb and Uber. And so it just seemed like that was like the, premier um, sort of like build system that wasn't a sort of Xcode build. Yeah. And then Buck is uh, Facebook's build system, just to clarify that. Yeah. 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 So Buck was created at Facebook. Um, And what's really interesting is that uh, if you kind of dive deeper into the history of um, some of these third-party build systems, they kind of all sort of like stem from the same place. Um, Uh (laughs) So so internally, uh, so Bazel is the open source version of a build system called Blaze, which is internal Google. And 
And people that worked either with this system or on this team um, found their way to work at Facebook and Twitter and create systems such as Buck and Pants because Bazel was not open sourced yet. Um, and, and, they, and they were like, I miss this cloud built system, which if you've talked to anyone that works at Google, um, they will all sort of like, you know, uh, sort of praise because it's sort of this magical thing that does like, it can build like massive amounts of code. And it's just, you know, it has all sorts of like caches and things that improve developer productivity. Um, and so, uh, so Buck is sort of the Facebook version of the Blaze build system. And when you look at Bazel and you look at Buck, you actually see a lot of common overlap in sort of, I think, how they're, how they're sort of implemented and their abstractions and their general architecture. It's funny when you look at tools like that, it's uh, similar with other things that kind of come from the same generation. For example, if we look at Swift and Kotlin, they are both kind of this same generation of programming languages and they are addressing the same kind of core problems that the previous generation had, whether that's like, you know, in Java, for example, you have this null pointer exception. And in Objective-C, we also had problems with nil values and when you were inserting them into array, things would explode. So you see both kind of Swift and Kotlin solving the same class of problems slightly differently, but in the same kind of general fashion. And uh, it's interesting to see that the same is true for, for these kind of build systems, Buck and Basel and others, that kind of come from the same cloth, if you will. Exactly. Yeah, I think like, that's it's totally true. We have, we have like, you know, these problems, I think that just become uh, sort of identified and escalated to the community. And then, um, and then like, you know, then you wind up with these sort of multiple solutions. And, and I think, you know, we're in sort of the age of type systems right now. Yeah. Um, which of course you talk to functional programmers, they'll tell you that started like 30 years ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but, uh, there's a lot of flexibility, like, you know, in Swift when it comes to the type system. But, you know, you talk to some of these guys and they're like, they're like, well, it doesn't even, have, doesn't even have higher kinded types. It's about the math, Rahul. It's about the math. <laughs> it's everything is algebra, you know? Yeah, exactly. All right, so in your kind of modularization effort, you were exploring different kind of build systems and eventually you settled on Bazel. So what was it that kind of made Bazel the winner for you? So for us, um, Bazel was probably one of the most well-documented um, like build systems that we saw. Um, it had like a very active, if you go and look at the repo, there's like hundreds of commits a day um, coming from Google and from like other people. Um, it's extensible. So it has support for custom custom build actions so we could make it do whatever we needed it to do. Um, and it also just had like, and, and I think like this is true of a lot of open source projects is like having sort of like, I think a strong uh, like sort of benefactor, like you know, the fact that Google is actively funding this and that there's um, sort of like a large team they've invested behind it means it's like here to stay and that it's going to get improvements and that it's like, it's something that they feel very passionate about pushing forward. And, and for us, like, you know, it was like, it was the thing that was going to enable us to like sort of accelerate our modularization and also to provide kind of unparalleled build wins because the, uh, even with the new build system in Xcode, um, LL build, like it has, if you look at its page, it actually has a lot of similar goals, um, to, to Bazel, um, sort of in its like longer term direction. But, um, and I'm sure we'll see some interesting things over the next couple of years. Um, so the new build system was based off of Shake. It was a Haskell build system and, 
And what's interesting about Shake and the reason why um, you see that progress bar now today where it says like it's this, it's calculating the number of actions or things, it's like it's actually sort of dynamically figuring out um, what needs to be done. And so and different build actions can actually like sort of um, create more build actions. And so uh, the progress bar is no longer um, super accurate. <laughs> <laughs> if it ever was. <laughs> if it ever was, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I don't believe you progress bar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you always get stuck at 99% anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then it's linking for five minutes or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think like, but the but the nice thing is that um, if you if you actually read up on the core of sort of like LL Build and sort of what it's designed after, it's actually designed with a lot of similar goals as these newer sort of modern build systems, where it's going to track um, sort of like it's it has a goal of tracking like sort of like I think the content of files and doing a better job of like potentially adding things like caches or things like that. And so um, so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that could happen. Um, and you know, I would definitely keep an ear out for like you know what Apple announces. Over the next couple of years when it comes to the new build system. Um, but like I would say for us, it's like, you know, that's probably I'm I'm expecting that's like years out. And so like our investment in Basil is like is, you know, at least good till then. And because like, you know, it doesn't offer things like sort of caches um, for us right now, like we were able to take our our like, you know, our CI build times from like 10 or 12 minutes down to like two to three minutes. Oh wow, that's a huge change. All right, next up, we're going to jump into our Q&A section and answer some great questions about networking and other fun stuff. But before we do, let's take another quick break and thank this episode's second and final sponsor. And it's once again, my good friends at Amazon Web Services. As you might already know, Amazon offers a suite of really powerful developer tools that lets you take advantage of their worldwide server infrastructure to power your backend. But did you know that they also offer a super easy way for you to do just that, but from within your iOS app? That's what AWS AppSync is. It's an easy to use yet very powerful native iOS framework that lets you use the power of Amazon servers, but without having to write or maintain any server-side code. It uses GraphQL, which lets you as the app developer select what data you want to load or save on the server, instead of having to define these backend endpoints that are really hard to change. And here's the cool thing. Say you already have a backend and that it uses some form of REST API that wasn't really built for your app, but you kind of have to use it. Well, you can use AppSync to solve this problem. You see, AppSync enables you to use many different data sources in the cloud, which means that you can actually connect it to your backend, and then automatically you get a super nice GraphQL API that you can use in your app, and AppSync just connects the dots. AppSync also offers a whole suite of other features, everything from conflict resolution to offline support to automatic creation of databases based on your models to managing user login and controlling access to certain data for certain users. It's all in there and it's all really easy to use. Now, whether you already have an existing backend or if you're starting out from scratch, AWS AppSync lets you work so much faster as an iOS developer without having to constantly sync changes with people working on the server side, no more waiting for API changes or having to sync versioning information or having to scale up your backend infrastructure if your app gets popular, none of that stuff. Let Amazon handle all of that for you and you can focus on building your app and creating a fantastic user experience. 
So check out AppSync from Amazon Web Services today. Try it out and see what it can do for you, your team, and your app. Go to aws.amazon.com slash AppSync to find out more. And if you go there and you click resources, you'll also find a ton of guides and tutorials to help you get started. Once again, that's aws.amazon.com slash AppSync to get started with AppSync for Amazon Web Services. Thank you so much to Amazon Web Services for sponsoring Swift by Sundell and for helping making this show possible. All right, so uh, what do you say? Should we start answering some questions from the audience? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we have our first question here from Vadim Apostoluk. And uh, he wants to hear a little bit about our ideal architecture for networking code. So if we separate the networking module from our view controllers, where would we make our network calls to get the latest data? So this is something that I know a lot of people think about and uh, they um, experiment with different kind of architectures. You know, where does your networking code go? Maybe create a view model or a logic controller. Do you put the networking in there? Do you do it in the view controller itself? Do you have some kind of manager? So first off, Raul, I want to hear how you solve these kind of problems at Pinterest. You mentioned earlier that you have this networking framework that you use and that you build kind of a layered approach on top of it. Um, but how, in general, do you kind of structure your networking code and how do you decide kind of what goes into a view controller and what goes somewhere else? So we tend to have no networking code directly in view controllers, um, just as a general practice. And so what we actually have, um, so we have kind of like, I'd say two different ways this is sort of handled. Um, so if you think about breaking up your networking into sort of like read and write requests. So read requests being like, you know, we're just trying to display data. Um, we're trying to paginate and show the next page information. Um, we currently use a RESTful API that has some like GraphQL-ish properties. Uh -huh. So you can do things like per field requests and um, you can sort of like, you know, do something a, li a little bit fancier than REST um, sort of style requests. Um, but the interesting part about most of the Pinterest uh, application is that um, is that a lot of it, like a lot of the content you're viewing, is is actually sort of initiated, um, sort of implicitly by the views. So, for instance, um, like we, so we use Texture, which was formerly um, Async Display Kit, and so it has this concept of ranges, and so you can. Think about what you're looking at on a screen as the visible range. And then, and then there's this thing that they call the render range, which is like, when do we start to actually render a cell that comes on screen? And then there's like a, a level even deeper than that, which is like the loading range. Like, when do we actually load new data? And so, and for instance, like, like we might say, when we're three screenfuls away from the bottom, we start loading the next set of pins or boards or users or whatever we're trying to show. The next page of data, basically. Yes, exactly. And so, but the interesting part about that is that there's no, there's nothing, there's nowhere in the view controller where that's actually sort of explicitly done. Like that's actually baked into the sort of like collection view abstractions we have. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And so, and it works not only for like vertical scrolling, it works for like horizontal paging views, nested, uh, like if you have like a, if you have like a vertical sort of like paging view that contains say like uh, carousels or something that's horizontally paging, it works in both ways there. Cool. So you get like this lazy loading capabilities, which I I guess it's a really good match for async display kit or texture, which is all about also parallelizing the rendering and doing rendering on the in the background and 
doing that kind of things as well. So uh, that's interesting that you that you chose to integrate on that level. So I, as the developer building a feature or building a view controller, I would just say I want data from this endpoint, and then as the user scrolls, kind of you figure that out under the hood, like when to add pagination information to that request, for example. Exactly. So we have um, so a particular view. You might say this this view is backed by this endpoint. Um, yeah. And that endpoint may contain uh, objects of these types. And which and when we say objects of these types, that's actually you're explicitly saying I can I know how to render things using these sort of data models um, or these view models or whatever. And so and so the abstraction sort of like takes that input and then knows how to trigger new network requests. It knows how to convert those network request responses into into like sort of like types that actually are then supplied to cells that are then rendered onto screen. And and you can be and and it's like and your list of objects that you say you can handle is explicit. So if you say if you have an endpoint that returns maybe pins and boards, but you want a view that only displays pins, it'll like implicitly just skip the boards. This is where the GraphQL like characteristics come in, right? Where you can say I don't want this data, I only want this set of data. Exactly. And so, um, and so, and, and I think like, you know, an interesting part about where we're sort of like going with this. So that's like kind of, that's kind of where our sort of like, say read requests are like today. And like where we're sort of going with it is probably taking this a step further and sort of, um, I think embodying like some of the stuff that Relay does in React and, and essentially saying that, um, different, different like views that you're going to render on screen can can basically sort of supply their uh their like fields fragment or like their their the, whatever fields they require mm-hmm. and yeah. and that and that if your collection view if you can think about a collection view we end up like registering different like sort of cell types or things like that and so um if we if we know everything that's registered and everything that could be rendered, we can use that to dynamically create the list of fields that we actually need to send to our server. Yeah, exactly. It would become a lot more declarative, where each type is declaring, "I'm interested in this data," and then you go off and fetch it and give it back. So you don't have to make these explicit calls from every single view controller, every single piece of the UI. Like it can all be kind of streamlined. Yeah, and it's and it's uh, it really goes back to that whole point about autonomy. It's like. Right now, we have a design system which like has like a lot of you know UI components and like sort of like core abstractions that um, for things like pins or boards or users and um, and if this is sort of like clearly defined in one place, it's easy to audit. It's also easy for people to reuse um, so that you don't need to figure out um, who wrote the pin UI cell and you can just use it and you don't have to think about the fields that are added or what fields you need to actually properly display this. Um, it's just sort of handled for you. Um, and then, and then when it comes to write requests, uh, we, we follow, um, we sort of have, I'd say, you, I think you said logic controller. I think it's like, yeah. it's fairly similar, um, where like things like pins, boards, or users have like a pin controller, board controller. Oh, yeah. I call those model controllers. <laughs> yeah, we call them API controllers, and so uh, and yeah, I don't know what the right name is for these, but um, naming is hard, right? <laughs> naming is hard. Um, but what I found is that uh, we sort of designed our architectures that I think like this is the area where I think most of the side effects live. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and so a lot of the so a lot of the other code is very easy to sort of reason about. Um, but this area is uh, it's 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 nice because we can actually have view controllers that are you know that maybe you know when you actually save a pin onto a board at Pinterest that you can uh, you might actually just use like the pin controller um, and say I'm 
Like I'm pinning this to this board and you just pass the board type and that that function actually, you just trust that it's going to do whatever it needs to do and that it will call back to you or it'll give you a future or something like that. Yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah. And, and, and the nice thing about that abstraction is that like you, we've, we've used that as an opportunity to bake in things like optimistic updates or sort of like, you know, if we needed to, you know, for some reason, like say persist a request that would be performed later when you resume network activity or things like that. It's sort of a convenient way where the caller doesn't think about, is this going on the network? The caller is just like, I need to perform this action. And then the actual implementation of that is sort of baked into the logic model or API controller, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I think that's definitely the right approach. I think from the UI layer, from view controllers, you just want to talk about intents. So you want to talk about actions and things that happen in the UI. You're not necessarily binding yourself to specific implementation details. And this has a lot of really good benefits, like not only about testing, because it's easier to test a logic controller or model controller than it is to test a view controller, because, well, it doesn't rely on the view lifecycle in order to work. Uh, but it also has a big benefit of really separating concerns and also enabling a bigger degree of flexibility. Let's say, for example, you're building a UI, a view controller, and you don't have the backend endpoint up and running yet. You just want to use local data. Well, if you have a just an, a, a contract, like a protocol or something like that between the view controller and whatever it's kind of acting as the brains behind the operation, like whether you call that a logic controller or something else, uh, or a view model, then then you could use a implementation of that, of that logic controller that actually just uses local data or mock data. And then once you're ready to wire things up to the network, you could just replace that with another implementation or replace it under the hood. And your view controller doesn't need to be updated at all. It can just keep working. Because one thing that I've uh, I've encountered a lot in the past is that you will use mocks and they will, for example, be synchronous. So you will code your view controller to be synchronous, but then your network is, of course, not synchronous, it's asynchronous. <laughs> and that way you have to, you end up with a lot of code that made kind of the wrong assumption. And you end up having to kind of recode things when if you would have separ separated out into a another abstraction, you would have kind of gotten that separation for free. So I tend to use logic controllers as a kind of one-to-one -one mapping with view controllers. So you have a logic controller is kind of the logic for that view. And then you have model controllers, the same as you have API controllers, where you have certain objects that kind of float around in your app, whether that's like a user session or your kind of core data models, and to kind of make sure it's updated and to contain like convenience APIs to manipulate it as well. Yeah, and most of our, um, I'd say a key, a key thing to point out with ours at least is, um, I'd say most of our networking sort of even, even in this, like these API controllers, like they're mostly just, uh, for us, they're mostly just like an object with class methods. They're pretty, they're pretty much pure. Um, so we don't, uh, you know, I'd say like if you're, if you're going down this approach, like, um, like having having something where it's effectively mostly static functions or um, is is probably a good it, you know because you, you quickly wind up in these scenarios where you you know you don't want to have issues where you have like multiple network requests like being managed by some API controller instance or something like that you and it also makes the code a lot easier to reason about. Absolutely. And it makes it easier to test as well, because you just have this clear, pure functional interface where something comes in and the same thing comes out. Exactly. And when you, and in, in this case, like most of our code, um, we've been in sort of a transition where I think a lot of our code was using callbacks. And then we started switching more to futures. Um, and 
And so when you and, and so but the nice thing is that like even if your stub, you know, if your stub for testing uses like uh, the the implementation is pretty much just call the success block immediately instead of doing something or failure block or whatever. Um, and it's and it's and, and then your code path is like nearly identical. Yeah, exactly. All right. Our next question here comes from Johan Roman, and he wants us to talk about a little bit how to manage versioning of support libraries and server-side APIs, like how to keep those in sync in an efficient manner, and also some thoughts on what to place on the client side and what would be better computed on the server-side. So... Um, one common theme I would say is to move a lot of logic to the server, especially kind of in larger companies. And this is something we worked a lot on at Spotify as well. We had this whole thing about backend driven UIs where the backend is kind of in charge of what gets rendered on the, on the client side. So I thought it would be interesting to hear how you deal with these things and how you reason about them as well. Like, first of all, how do you kind of make sure that the client and the server can talk to each other in a, you know, efficient manner and that that doesn't kind of get outdated and also kind of how you decide where to put a piece of logic, whether it goes on the server or if it goes on the clients. So I think in general, we tend to put more complicated logic um, on the server. The reason I think is you're talking about generally two different modes of software where one is deployed and one's released. Um, yeah. Deployed software, you can change and immediately everyone has the new version of that. Um, whereas in release, you're managing typically, you know, multiple versions at a time. Um, you have like just different constraints and the penalty for, I think, messing up the logic is a lot harder, is a lot higher in, in sort of released software. And so there's like, you can probably put basic logic on the client. Like a layout and things like that and things that are very close to the user, like user input handling and things like that. You usually want to keep that on the client side to be really fast and responsive. And also it relates to what the user is doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like, um, yeah, it might be, that's an interesting sort of way of looking at it because you're you're hitting at something which is that uh, sort of the user experience can be impacted by these decisions. So if you need a server round trip to make this decision, then uh, then you might like, you know, you, it, it might just be a bad experience. Uh, for instance, like if you're taking, if someone's trying to log in or sign up for an account and you're like sending, you know, a network request every keystroke to validate a password or something like that. Um, not, th not that you should just send, you shouldn't send a password in plain text, but, you know, uh, <laughs> but just as an example, just an example. as an example, <laughs> yeah. um, that uh, that it's just going to be a bad. It's going to feel like a sluggish experience. You probably will have lower conversion rates of that person signing up, and so. But what's interesting is that with examples like that, you end up often doing it in both places. So because you uh, you have to kind of have this relationship where like the server and the client work together, but they don't trust each other. So mm -hmm. the so the server has to be very skeptical of what it's getting from the client um, and say like, I don't think it actually is valid. And so it'll do its own tests. Um, and uh, and so you have you have sort of like that. And then I think with the more complicated things, you generally just keep them on the server. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good rule. And uh, something that you can also experiment with, uh, depending on the use case, is kind of 
is to have the server declare kind of what the logic is and then just have the client kind of follow that. So in, in the example of password validation or in, maybe not with passwords because that's again very sensitive, but maybe you have some requirements about your username, you might have the server actually like send back a regular expression or something or send back an array of rules that the username needs to follow. And then to come back to your point about deployed versus release software, you should, you're able to iterate on the requirements of a username without having to keep the clients in sync because chances are that Android might you know validate slightly different from iOS at some point and then you need to revalidate on the server and you will probably do that anyway but if you have the server kind of declare some of these rules and have the client more act as just taking instructions from the server you can end up with having a more dynamic system that is also easier to keep in check because everything has kind of a single source of truth. Yeah, exactly. And also like another way to think about it is you could have different levels of sort of logic. So you could have maybe like simpler logic around uh, sort of like username checks where you're like, hey, it should be at least this length. Um, it shouldn't contain any of these characters, um, things like that. And then on the server side, you might have like, say, a blacklist of like uh, of of usernames you can't take. Like, for instance, like, we don't want anyone signing up with OAuth as their name. Um, and then you have Pinterest.com slash OAuth. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point as well, to kind of do the really cheap and quick validation, if we're talking about validation logic specifically on the client side, and then to do, like, the full validation suite on, on the back end. I, I really like that as well. Uh, another thing that I usually think about is... I want to keep the client kind of as simple as possible and focus on rendering, handling events, uh, structuring the UI and things like that, navigation and things that are very, very client specific. And I want the kind of core logic, like the the, the really logic that is close to the, the really models and the data and all those things as much as possible to happen on the server. Because again, that keeps things consistent between platforms. It's something we can update quickly and iterate on. Uh, but also it kind of creates this more clear relationship between the server and the client. Because if we start scattering logic all over the place and we have you know, some logic is on the server, some is on the client, it can kind of get tricky when debugging, especially when you have like a more like tricky bug that uh, you don't really know if it's on the client or on the back end. You need a lot of back and forth between different people and lots of logging and trying to figure things out. Well, if you have this more clear relationship that let's say the client just gets like a view model uh, a serialized view model from the back end and just looks at that and follows those instructions and renders it, you have a much, much easier debugging experience usually. Yeah. And another thing um, I think to sort of like, sort of like uh, add to this sort of list of reasons to do one versus the other is if you, um, if you think about the server, the server is your sort of like, um, it's sort of like your authoritative decision maker um, in this case. Like, so, if you have like multiple clients that are sending kind of like conflicting information, um, the server is like sort of like the thing that reconciles this. It's sort of like the broker between all these requests. So um, like an interesting thing might be like, let's say uh, like we have a feature where you can like reorder your pins on a board. Um, if you did this on say like, you know, your iPhone and like, I don't know, you didn't have network activity, so we stashed that network request for later. And then you actually did it again later on your iPad. Um, and then that iPhone request goes off later. Um, the server is the one that can actually say like, oh, this is, this is valid. This is invalid. Um, you know, it's like, it sort of like sees all the sort of like mutations that are trying to happen to the system and it can choose how it wants to respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, that's uh, all the questions that we have time for for this episode. So thanks so much to everyone who sent in questions and who continue to do so. Uh, I really appreciate it because it helps keep the show fresh. And I love to hear also what all of you listening out there, like what you're interested in and what you want us to talk about. So thank you so much for that. But now we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you so much, Rahul, for taking the time to join me on this episode. It was so much fun. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, it was a true pleasure. So if people want to find you online, where should they go? Uh, I'm on Twitter at rmalik, R-M-A-L-I-K. You can find me on GitHub, github.com, Rahul-Malik. And... uh, Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's awesome. And we'll put links in the show notes to that as well. And you can find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. You can find the show notes for this episode at swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 35. Thanks so much again to Amazon Web Services and Manning for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check those out in the show notes as well. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.